course of uh, our practices about. Um, so this afternoon I'd like to uh, talk a little bit about how we realize emptiness for ourselves in our own practice. Um, there are different ways of doing this. One of the meanings of emptiness, and I'm use, I'll use emptiness and selflessness uh, synonymously. Because it means empty of self. It doesn't mean things aren't there. Uh, one of the ways we experience this emptiness of self both in meditation practice and just in our life, is by paying attention to the fact that things are not amenable to our will. It's not that there's a self which is controlling the nature of phenomena. We can't say with any hope of fulfillment at all, let my body not become ill. Let me not age. But the list could be the list could be long. It doesn't happen like that. The body is following its own laws, and things happen according to conditions, not according to the direction of someone in there who's who's guiding the show. And you might say, well. Maybe the body's like that, but what about the mind? Let me not have any wandering thoughts. Let me have only pleasant memories. Let me, And we can make all of these resolutions, but again, it's not a question of someone controlling it. There's no one behind who's controlling the process. Everything, both in the body and in the mind, is happening when the conditions for that thing to arise are there. If you went to the stove and you stood in front of it and said, may the water boil, may the water boil, may the water boil, it would be a long time before you got the cup of tea. Because what you need is some effective means of raising the temperature of the water. It's not a question, not a question of our willing it. Although as I thought of that example and thought of some teachers I've had who have had great powers of mind, right, and the whole development of psychic powers and through, through meditation, and they might say, may the water boil, and all of a sudden the water would boil. But again, that's happening because they're working within the realm of certain other laws. It's not simply a function of will. They have developed certain unusual powers, but it's all lawful. You know, it's understanding, okay, this is another effective means for raising the temperature. This is one of the meanings of selflessness, the ungovernableness of things that 
that's not amenable to our will. This applies to our aspiration for liberation as well. I wanted to read you something uh, along this line, which I think is exceedingly important for, especially for Westerners, uh, as we practice the Dharma. This is the Buddha talking to uh, some monks. When a bhikkhu, a monk, does not dwell devoted to development, that is, development of practice, even though such a wish as this might arise, oh, that my mind might be liberated from the taints by non-clinging. Oh, may I be free from clinging. Yet his mind is not liberated from the taints by not clinging. For what reason? Because of non-developing. Because of not developing what? Because of not developing the four establishments of mindfulness, the four right strivings, the four bases for power, the four spiritual faculties, the five powers, the seven factors of enlightenment, the eightfold path. And it was just, when I came across that passage, it was just another very specific teaching that enlightenment itself, freedom, from non-clinging itself arises out of conditions. So we can have the deepest aspiration in the world. May I be free, or the hope, you know, may I be free, may I be free from suffering. But if the work is not done to create the conditions for that, for that realization, it doesn't happen. Everything is following the law, and that's in, in one way or in one meaning, what the word dharma means. Dharma means law, natural law. It's just how things happen. And the Buddha pointed out the way, and pointed out the law. So we need to understand this process of conditions. This is a third exercise to do. And in that sidebar of exercises uh, as you can practice in your, in your life. Pay attention to those moments where it really stands out clearly that things are not amenable to your will. Whether it's some situation in your body or some in your relationships or being caught in rush hour traffic, whatever it is, to see all of the ways in one's life where things are happening according to conditions, not because we want them or don't want them to be a certain way. We begin to see more and more clearly through this understanding of this aspect of selflessness there's a sense of letting go, there's a sense of relinquishment um, or a letting go of a certain contraction of the illusion that we're the one who's making things happen independent of creating the conditions for it to happen. 
okay, there's another meaning, another way we understand selflessness or emptiness. This first way is by seeing that things are not amenable to our will, but happen because of conditions, the appropriate conditions. I'll just I'll back up. I want to just elaborate that point in one more way. Uh, something I mentioned last night in the, in the public talk. One of my new favorite mantras, which is, anything can happen anytime. You know, and it's that sense, and I, it came to me, this, it, it actually came to me a few years ago when I was at Vallecitos, uh, that environmental ranch in New Mexico where retreats are given for uh, environmental activists. I was teaching there, and at the end of the retreat, uh, everybody was hiking along the river, and I slipped on the rocks, and I came down hard on my foot, and I hyperextended my knee. Uh, and I, I knew something was not great. But then I walked back to the lodge, and I sat in, that evening, giving the closing talk, I sat giving the talk cross-legged. And I had the thought, the thought came to my mind, sit in the chair. But I didn't, I didn't listen to that intuition, so I sat cross-legged. I couldn't get up. I had to be carried back to my room. I, my knee was a wreck. You know, I couldn't put any weight on it at all. So that night was the last day of the retreat. My schedule, I was supposed to be in Europe, you know, some week or so later teaching other retreats. And my mind was just spinning out on how stupid can you be? How could you do that? And I was just getting involved in this long self-judgment. And, and then something, something turned. The, the voice of wisdom came up in the mind again. Things happen. Things are not under our control. We, given the nature of the body, accident happens, illness happens, all kinds of things happen. Anything can happen anytime. And since then, I really use that a lot. You know, many, many days, that thought will come in my mind. And what I notice, instead of it, as it might appear to be a, a source of fear, you know, oh, anything can happen anytime, and kind of getting paranoid, much more it comes the sense of relief. It's like letting go of the illusion that we can control things completely. You know, anything can happen at any time. This is the nature. This is the, one of the meanings of selflessness, of emptiness. And there's this real relaxing into an acceptance of it, rather than a fighting or a struggle or a pretense that it's otherwise. So I recommend it as a mantra. It's like we can relax. We can relax the effort to stay in control of things that are uncontrollable. Okay. Another way we can experience emptiness, and this is one that's of course given a lot of emphasis in the Buddhist teachings and in our practice, is through a refinement of our awareness of change, where we're really seeing the momentariness of phenomena. And one of the things that happens 
going back to the question this morning about development in practice, one of the things that happens as the concentration in mindfulness gets stronger is our refinement of the perception of change. And I call that noticings per minute. It's NPMs. As the practice gets stronger, the NPMs go up. So instead of you notice this, and then maybe a couple of moments later you notice this, and then that, as the mind gets clearer and steadier, really is seeing in a more and more refined way, it's it's like the frequency gets higher. Uh, It gets very, very quick, the power of the mind to notice. So, for example, even within what we would call a single sound or half a breath, it's not just one thing. You know, in in a single sound, it's many, many vibrations going on. Or half a breath, many sensations within that breath or one step. I don't know how carefully you did the walking this morning, but when the mind is really undistracted and feeling carefully, even now, just, just for a moment, if you just move your arm, being receptive, letting it come to you, just feeling the myriad sensations that are happening. There's a lot going on. It's sort of like looking at something that appears solid through a microscope. And all of a sudden, what seems solid and unitary, is that a word, unitary? (laughs) All of a sudden, there's a whole world that appears. Well, it's the same thing through the power of our mindfulness. So we begin to really experience the momentariness, the things things are arising and vanishing and passing many, many, many times a moment very quickly. So as we see this, as the attention gets refined enough to be perceiving this, we see that nothing lasts long enough to be called self. Whatever we might think of as being self is gone in the moment of noticing it. A thought or a sensation or an emotion. Even consciousness itself is arising and passing so quickly. There are times in the practice where as soon as we notice something, it's gone. In the very moment of noticing, it's gone. And sometimes it's even faster than that. It's almost like there's the intimation of something and it's gone. And as our mind gets more tuned to that, we see that everything we think is so solid, whether in the body, the mind, or outside, we really are experiencing for ourselves, this is not theoretical at this point, we're seeing that there's nothing much there. It's like, um, it's like rapidly changing energy formations where there's no, there's no core to anything. And everything is just continually arising and changing and dissolving so quickly. begin to see that there's no past. Past is a concept. There's no future. And past and future are really thoughts in the moment. 
we have certain thoughts about something, we call it past, or, or images. We have certain thoughts in the moment about things that will happen, and we call that future, but really it's a thought in the moment, or, or an image in the moment. There's no, in this, in this way of speaking, on this level of experience, there is no past, there is no future, but the incisive, cutting through moment is that there's no present. You know, because we could understand no past, no future, and still kind of have a self in the present. But when we're seeing the impermanence at this level, where even in the moment there's nothing, it's like continually dissolving. So it's through the door of impermanence that we begin to understand selflessness. We're going to understand emptiness. Backing up to past and future, another sidebar exercise. Notice how often, just in the course of our daily life, we create a sense of self with some aspect of the thought I was or I will be. And you can just elaborate those two directions. I was, I did this, this and this yesterday or the day before or last week and we kind of get lost in those thoughts of what we have done. Creating the sense of I in that I was, I did and how much we create a sense of self in our thoughts of future, of what I will do, I will be, I will become. So we project this sense of self into the future. And it's all based on a thought in the moment that's not being recognized as being just a thought. Is this, are we together? But the Buddha talked about this a lot, about this conceit of I am. That's what he called conceit, not, not limited to being puffed up about something, but just the conceit being the sense of I am. And how we have this, well, this conceit develops out of uh, thoughts about the past, of having been a certain way, and thoughts about the future, of becoming a certain way. Now it's really interesting in the in the teachings, the antidote to conceit, to this sense of I am, is the perception of impermanence. That's precisely how that defilement is uprooted, because when we're there in the momentariness, the very thought I am, I was, I will be, is seen as just a momentary dissolving thing. There's no there's no place for that thought to land and take root. And so again, it comes back to that openness of no past, no future, no present. It's just openness, empty of self. Okay, so it's the second way 
And this is, again, particularly through our meditation practice, but also just in the world of, of watching this flow of impermanence and the conceit of I am, projected into the past, projected into the future. I want to emphasize that, and I know you know this, so this is just, this is just encouraging what you know. Uh, the point of all this is to relieve suffering. It's not, it's not, it's not about understanding Buddhist philosophy, right? Although that's, <laughs> we do get a better understanding of it, but all of this is about becoming aware of the suffering of the contraction of self, of I, of that self-center, and the freedom from suffering in the letting go of that, in coming to that zero center of emptiness, or emptiness of self. So it's really about transforming our lives and coming back to giving up a lesser happiness for a greater happiness. You know, it's really opening ourselves to a much fuller sense and expression of energy when it's not contracted or rooted in a sense of I. Okay, so we understand or we begin to experience this for ourselves through the seeing that Phenomena is not amenable to our will, it's ungovernable, and really noticing that. It's one doorway in. Another doorway in is to the refinement of our perception of change, and this is really developing the mindfulness you know, in a very momentary way. Uh, and our minds can get incredibly refined in terms of seeing this. It's like making our minds, it's like a our minds become like a high-power microscope, you know, where we focus the power of our mind in order to see only dimensions. And we can we can all do this. This is not this is not just you know for these great yogis in India. This is definitely within our capacity. Uh, and I speak from authority here because when I started my practice years ago in India. I had zero concentration, just zero. I would sit and I would think the whole hour, mm -hmm. you know, and I'd get up, hmm, that was nice. You know, the hour goes quickly. <laughs> and it took, I, I really practiced. I just kept coming back, the same thing we do, and again and again and again. And over the years, I have really noticed a huge difference. So I know it can be done. You know, it doesn't take any you know, any special or mystical quality, it just takes practice. Okay, the next way that we can recognize emptiness, seeing things are not amenable to our wills, refining our perception of impermanence. The next way is seeing that There is no 
there is no exist or how to say this there is no thing that the words self or I refer to that as we look carefully in our experience we use these words conventionally and they are useful conventionally so I'm not suggesting we stop using them but as we look more carefully we see they are a designation for an appearance of things that does not refer to anything in itself and I will explain this so. it's like we have a certain surface recognition of sort of mental, physical, emotional elements that we normally call self or I. There's a pattern of thoughts, of feelings, emotions, sensations, sights, sounds. It's like a mosaic. You know, you put all the pieces of a mosaic and there's an appearance. We are a mosaic of elements, of mental, physical elements. Out of that mosaic of elements, there's an appearance which we name self, or I, or Joseph. But there's no thing that Joseph refers to other than that appearance. The problem is, because we use that name, we give it that designation of Joseph or self or I, then we start believing, because we're not looking carefully, that the I, the self, actually does exist as the reference point for experience. So we've created a concept based on a certain perception of an appearance, then we solidify that concept because we're not seeing that it's just a concept, and somehow we, <laughs> as if we plant it, plant this concept inside somehow, as if there's something there that is the self or the I. But when we look, and this is the investigative power of meditation, there is nothing that it refers to other than the appearance of all these elements in interplay. So as an example, give a, I won't, I won't uh, inflict the Big Dipper on you, <laughs> which I did last night and for the last 30 years. But there's another example, which I've used occasionally. Uh, some years ago, I was uh, visiting a friend on Maui. And when we went uh, along the north, the north shore of Maui, maybe some of you have been there, uh, we came to this one place where there's a blowhole. I don't know if you know what a blowhole is. It's where water, this, the lava has formed... Uh, it's a cave, really, that's open to the ocean, that's open to the surf. And at the top of the cave, there's sort of a little hole. So as the, as the water rushes in, the pressure of the water shoots up 
out of the top of the cave. It's like a geyser effect, you know, and the water shoots up and then the wave goes out and the water uh, falls away and then the next wave comes in. So we went there. We went to this place where there was this blowhole and we were watching and as the water shot up, if the conditions were right, every time the water shot up and you know, the sun was in a certain way, a rainbow appeared. You know, and then the water fell away and the rainbow disappeared. A rainbow is a good example of an appearance that arises out of a combination of elements coming together, but does not exist as a thing in itself. There's no rainbow apart from the appearance coming out of moisture and sun and air in a certain way. Like these elements come together and a rainbow appears, and it's not to say the rainbow is not real, because as an appearance, it is, and we have that experience. But there's no, there's no thing which is the rainbow. Right? It's simply an appearance. But we give it the name rainbow, we give it a designation, and the very designation, the very concept, tends to solidify our experience, and we tend to not literally, but close to literally, think of the rainbow as a thing in itself. Yeah, a rainbow, we all know what a rainbow is. And we usually are not seeing it as the interplay of light and air and water. And if we went out and, you know, we saw a rainbow in the sky and somebody said, what did you see? Oh, I saw the light mixing with the moisture in the air and... We wouldn't, we wouldn't say that. We'd say, I see a rainbow. Which is useful. The concepts are useful. But they're dangerous when we don't see that they're simply concepts. Well, the notion of rainbow is not particularly dangerous. The notion of self gets us in a lot of trouble when we believe that it's really there. So a very nice poetic, what's the word, uh, poetic conceit, or, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> something. I mean, we could think of, we could, we could see each one of ourselves as being like a rainbow, <laughs> you know, in the sense, hey, there's an appearance of someone being here, and in the conventional world, the relative world, we relate to these appearances and we interact and all of that is necessary and there are ways to do it skillfully, but on a more fundamental level, on a more absolute level, there's no one there. It's simply the play of elements. Now, let me just clarify the no one there piece. <laughs> because sometimes people might hear that and they go, no one there, what happens? 
when we know that rainbow is just a designation for an appearance, does anything change in our perception of it? No. I mean, the, the, the phenomena remains exactly as it is, right, in our experience of it. It's just we're not misperceiving it to be something concrete in itself. And so if we're smart, knowing that, we don't go searching for the pot of gold at the end. If we're not so smart, and we think, yeah, the rainbow is really there, and if we could follow it to the end, we'll find the pot of gold, that's a lot of futile searching. Well, I don't know that you made the leap, but we may not go chasing the pot of gold with the rainbow, but we do go chasing the pot of gold, the rainbow of self, as if somehow we just keep looking and this self will find satisfaction or completion or happiness or whatever it is that keeps driving us. And it's all because we are not seeing clearly that the very notion of self is simply a concept. And so when we realize this, all of that effort and energy we put into fulfilling it relaxes. There's a, there's, a, there's a writer, teacher, uh, I don't even know if he's still alive, he wrote under the name of Wei Weiwei, and I read his books back in like the 60s and 70s, he's an Englishman who lived in Hong Kong, and he clearly had some enlightenment experiences because his, his wisdom was so direct and incisive, a lot about selflessness. Uh, I mean, you might look to see if you, you ever see some of his books, because they're very good. They're, they're all these short little epigrams and sayings pointing to this understanding. But one of them, Wei Wu Wei, W-E-I. Uh, I mean, one of his books was The Open Secret. Uh, that was a good one. But there were several. One of, the th one of his little epigrams was, just in talking about this, how the notion of self believing or concretizing, I don't know how to say, concretizing the belief, you know, in a sense of self, and then having that drive us in our lives to fulfill it, to find happiness, he said, this is like a dog barking up a tree that isn't there. <laughs> it's just the image, you know, <laughs> of a dog barking up a tree that's not there. Well, that's what we are doing in our lives when we don't see this clearly. And when we do see it clearly, we can stop barking. Or stop being driven so much. It's really remarkable. <laughs> There's something very uh, remarkable about this. One of the best 
descriptions of this, and this was one of the reading assignments, I don't know whether you got to do it or not, was that sutta, the, the Anuradha Sutta. Did everybody get it? Or? Okay, I'd, li- I'd like to go through it a little bit because it's, it's really one of my favorite ones uh, because the Buddha just, just with brilliance deconstructs the whole notion of self, of anyone being there. So I have a copy with me. I'll, I'll just go through it as a way of emphasizing this point in this teaching. So the story is, if, if you read the sutta, you know, you know there was this one monk who, in the time of the Buddha, uh, it was common for all these wanderers, you know, to wander around northern India and debating one another. And so this one monk, the Buddhist monk, met some other wanderers, and they asked him the traditional Indian philosophic question, does the Buddha exist after death? or not exist after death, or both exist and not exist, or neither exist nor not exist. It's it's a classical Indian philosophic uh, form. And so then Anuradha replies, the Buddha is spoken of in ways other than this. So then the other monks, the other wanderers of the other sects, they they reviled, you know, Anuradha, the monk, and he said, oh, you must be a total novice or a fool. You don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so Anuradha then, you know, felt upset. He went to the Buddha. How could I have answered? How could I have answered more wisely? So then the Buddha asked these series of questions. So let me, instead of you reading it, don't read it right now but I'm going to play the Buddha for a moment, asking the questions. Because they're all, they're all, they're not trick questions. So really just, to whatever extent you can, really reflect on the question in your experience. But before we do this, just I need to back up a little bit. Are you, are you all relatively familiar with the scheme of the five aggregates? Or, or should I just review it briefly? Okay. And this because this understanding the five aggregates is the key to understanding the sutta. Just as the rainbow, you know, we use that as a concept for an appearance arising out of moisture and light and air, and certain elements. So the Buddha analyzed what are the elements that give rise to the appearance of a self, of an I. So he analyzed the constituent elements, and he called, and this is found in almost every sutta the Buddha gave, so it's just the most basic teaching. He analyzed five constituent you could say elements, or the word they use is aggregates. 
and in Pali it's skanda, and literally it means, the literal translation is heaps. So it's like five heaps of things, right, which together create the appearance of a self. Okay, so what are these five aggregates or heaps? The first are the physical physical elements. You know, it's everything in our physical material world. Um, so in this sense, it's what constitutes the physical body. Um, and then he goes on to analyze what's, what all those physical elements are, but in terms of the five aggregates, they're all heaped together, or in one heap, the physical elements, material elements. The second heap are feelings, which does not mean emotion here. It means the experience we have in every moment of things being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So it's, it's that experience that occurs in every moment. You know, when we see something, or hear, or feel, or think, or smell, or taste, it's always felt as being pleasant, or unpleasant, or neutral. So that's the second aggregate, the second element of our experience. The third aggregate is perception, which is the function of recognition, and this is where concepts come in. We hear the sound, we recognize its distinguishing qualities, and it's that process of recognition we designate it. We hear a sound, recognize its distinguishing characteristics, designate it with the concept wave or ocean. So that's a certain functioning of the mind. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over at this point to play side two. That's the function of perception. It's recognition and memory. It's the third heap, third aggregate. Okay, so there's the physical elements, there's feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, there's perception. The fourth aggregate is every other, what are called mental factors, all the other uh, qualities of mind. They're all heaped together. Greed, hatred, fear, envy, love, compassion, generosity, kindness, concentration, restlessness. It's like everything else beside feeling and perception. So that's the fourth aggregate, it's called the aggregate of mental formations. And the fifth aggregate is consciousness, just that bare knowing that which knows. So this is, this is a model of understanding what it is that we call self. And these are just like the different elements that go into the appearance of a rainbow. These are the mind-body elements that go into the appearance of Joseph, of each one of us. Is that, I mean, this would be worth either as, as a group or individually, it would be worth 
studying this piece, the aggregates, the five aggregates, because it's easy, and I've done this for years myself, to read it and it's kind of boring and just, <laughs> I read it and just, okay, 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 get on with it. <laughs> you know, where's the juicy stuff? But it is absolutely the foundation. You know, it's like really important to understand this because these are the, the building blocks of what constitute what we are taking to be who we are. You know, and so just to spend some time really understanding what's uh, and there's one book which you could look at uh, it's called Manual of Abhidharma Manual of Abhidharma uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi translated and it's not a book it, it's this very detailed analysis of mental factors and consciousness and material elements. So it's not, it's definitely not a spy book. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's slow going. And it's a really interesting way of understanding one's own mind. You know, so, but again, it takes, you know, you want to take it slow. Uh, but there's really a wealth of Dharma there. Okay, coming back to Anuradha. Hmm? Well, I certainly cannot claim any poly authenticity. <laughs> I have mispronounced more poly words. I, it could well be. I've mangled many terms. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. We, we all have mangled many terms. <laughs> uh, so, it could well be. Okay, so the Buddha goes to, or Anuradha goes to the Buddha and says, how could I have answered him? And the Buddha asks these questions. Okay, so now, with a stretch of your imagination, just I'm channeling. You know, I'm channeling the Buddha. Okay. So, is the body permanent or impermanent? Well, we know that. Then he goes on. Are feelings in permanent or impermanent? Our perceptions, our mental formations, our consciousness, permanent or impermanent. Okay, and just, so as you say that, just really drop into the experience of what it means that each of those are impermanent. Each of these aggregates, you know, the body, feelings, perceptions, formations, consciousness, that, that each one of these elements of who we are really is changing in every moment. So, yeah, there's nothing there to hold on to. So what is impermanent, is that reliable or unreliable? 
I mean, these are not hard questions, but we generally don't ask them. You know, what is impermanent? It's unreliable. Can't be dependent on precisely because they're impermanent. It's not that they're at fault. It's simply they don't last long enough, so there's nothing to rely on. Right, it's reliably. There. It's consistently impermanent. <laughs> okay, so what is impermanent and what is unreliable, what is of a nature to change, what is impermanent, unreliable, of a nature to change, is it proper to regard that as this is mine? This is myself. This is I. Let's just think for a moment. And something that's you know, changing in every moment and unreliable in that sense that is not lasting. Does it make sense to say, this is me, this is myself, this is I? No. <laughs> so Anuradha answered, no, Bhante. Okay, now this, you really need to stay concentrated with this because the Buddha just takes this to another level. Now, Anuradha, do you regard the Tathagata, and that's how he referred to himself, right? the Tathagata is how the Buddha referred to himself, do you regard the Tathagata's body as being the Tathagata? Okay, remember the questions you just answered. No. Do you regard the Tathagata's feelings, perceptions, mental, all those mental formations, consciousness, as being the Tathagata? No. Okay, here's where... Do you regard the Tathagata as being something apart from these aggregates? Okay, so we've just seen that all of these aggregates are impermanent, unreliable, doesn't make sense to call them I or self. We see that Anuradha does not think that the body is the Tathagata. Feelings perceive none of those elements. So then the Buddha is asking, do you think that Tathagata is something else than these five aggregates? No. Then the Buddha goes on to quiz him further. Do you regard the Tathagata as having no body, no feelings, no perceptions, no consciousness? Somehow, somehow the Tathagata exists not having any of these. No. Okay, here's the punchline. Then, since in just this life, the Tathagata is not to be found, is not to be met with in reality, is it proper to say of him he can be spoken of in some other way after death either? See, the whole question was, what happens to the Tathagata after death? Does he exist? Doesn't he exist? Is he both? And the Buddha just deconstructed the whole notion because it was based on a false predication of the Tathagata existing. And he just deconstructed it, saying that even in this very life, the Tathagata is not to be found. 
Well, you might go through the sutta applying all of these questions to oneself. And really look, the body, the feelings, the perceptions, mental formations, are they impermanent or permanent? Reliable or unreliable? Is there anything there in them that we could call self or I? We answer all these questions, no, no, no. Are we something apart from these elements? Somehow does Joseph exist apart from these five aggregates? No. You following me? I mean, it's quite amazing. It's just, it's like, it takes our notion of someone being there and it totally deconstructs it in a way. And every time I read this, I just get the sense of, I love this line. Then since in just this life, the Tathagata is not to be found. So in just this life, Joseph is not to be found or each one. It's, it's like all of a sudden being here and then, in a way it's like getting turned inside out. It's something like that where, you know, we live behind a shell of the concept self or I. And it's this, we're holding on to this notion but when we look in this way, all of a sudden, it's like turned inside out, there's no shell, and then everything is just as it is. Right? So it's not that we realize this and you know, suddenly this disappears. Everything is exactly as it always was, but it's understood correctly as opposed to understood through the veil and attachment to the concept of I. So it's powerful. This, this is a radical transformation of understanding, of understanding ourselves and other people in the world. To the degree that we do understand this, self, the notion of self or I, no longer drives us so powerfully and we are driven then in our lives. That's, that's the driving force. But in, 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 in the fact that we say that we do with the Chapa Gala separate from the realization and the answer is no. So to me it makes me feel like the Chapa Gala is not underneath the concept and I don't think so. I think it's a question of clarity of sequence. So I think that there are moments of consciousness which are happening very quickly and there's a moment of hearing 
minimum moment of thinking, creating a concept for what's heard. And these are two separate moments. Yeah, the, the, the problem is in the clinging. The problem is not in the concept. There's yeah, not... Right. Yes, 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 yes. No, that's correct. That's correct. So I, I, I have not, I've not been suggesting, and I've said a few times, that, <laughs> that we throw out the concepts. They're useful. We need to use concepts. And so it's not to say that they don't arise or they shouldn't arise, but it's to see them for what they are, to see that they are a concept. And when we do, then there is no clinging. Yeah. And that is the key point. Yeah. And that's yeah. a little different from just clinging that you go around here and Yes, yes. <laughs> what it is is the distinguishing of the, the pure sound from the concept. Not that you stop having the concept. It's distinguishing the two. was the classic in, in the Buddhist text, they used, they used chariot in just the way you used house, with, you know, is it this part, is it that part? This is the union of the relative and absolute levels. What we're calling house is the, what you call the aggregate of the aggregates. It's all of these things in relationship to one another, and there is an experience of that. So there is an actual experience, and it serves a function. But there is no existing thing in itself, which is the house, apart from all of these elements in relationship to one another. When we look at the parts in relationship to one another, we see that each one of them are impermanent. Each one is impermanent. Right, and unreliable in that sense. When we use the word house to designate the relationship, and then we are under the illusion that there is something in itself which is the house, we get lost in, or it's easy to get lost in the sense of solidity to it, and we get attached. Just, oh, this, this might be a... a traumatic example. <laughs> house. My house. Fire comes along. No house. Right? 
new conditions come together. House again. If there was some holding or not seeing of the contingent nature of what was called house, and we know, I mean, we know it intellectually, but are we living that understanding? That what we're calling, it's just contingent upon conditions coming together, knowing that those conditions are completely changeable. Anything can happen anytime. When we have that understanding, then as conditions change, there is less suffering, because we know that. To the degree that we have taken house to be something, and then claiming it house, my house, and we don't see that, yes, that's a reality on a certain level, but what we're calling that is just these elements having come together for some time and liable to, to falling apart, then we get attached to that, and when they change, as it inevitably does, we suffer. So it's not to deny the experience of house or self, but it's to, at the same time, understand that that's just a convenient designation for something that is much more unstable. And when we see that, then we don't grasp it so tightly. When we don't grasp it so tightly, as it changes, which it will, there's not the suffering involved, because we haven't misperceived it. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not attached to that way of phrasing it. So if, and I haven't, <laughs> I, I haven't gone down the rigorous philosophical path. I, if, if it feels more accurate to say house is a designation for contingent conditions, or is it, it's just in some way that represents the fact that house does not exist independently as a thing, independent of the conditions, and that the conditions are changeable. So it's that idea that needs to be expressed. discussion. <laughs> I thought today we would hit emptiness. And then the <laughs> right. Now, very important, because this is half. The thing is, this is the most difficult half. But the other half is completely necessary. Yeah, and we'll go into that a lot. Yeah. So you're saying we're 
whatever it is. Yeah, at, le at least one aspect yeah. of it. And yeah. we, we are deconstructing today because let's say before coming in here, our belief of what it really is, it isn't. Exactly. Exactly. And so to to talk of the other before having gotten this straightened out, it's like building the other on a false and inaccurate uh, foundation, which is why there's so much suffering in the world. Because, and this is what the Buddha talked about, it's living in delusion. It's not seeing how things are. And so we, we just live our whole lives based on this you know, he called it the wrong view. That was that was the phrase he used. Right. about it, but it's just the little I do. Uh, the, the, the big difference, of course, and this is what was incredibly frustrating for me when I was in college studying philosophy, where not, you know, my mind even then just had this tremendous interest in understanding things, but it was all intellectual. There was no way to actually realize these things, and it quickly became apparent that no matter how brilliant the conceptual framework, unless it got translated, it was basically useless. And so that's why the Buddha's great gift is, okay, how can I realize this? Uh. Yes. Um, as I was walking, um, I'm just experiencing this man, I was thinking, like Helen Keller, well, that's all she experienced. She didn't have the other things to understand. <laughs> so it wasn't until she was able to that, you know, that wonderful moment of the gap of getting the concept before you can see the stuff. Because otherwise you just start the way stuff that Yeah, but with the concept of self, uh, we've got it. I mean, that's... that's That is our way of perceiving, you know, who we are and who other people are. So that that's the deeply conditioned framework that we carry. And this is the one part of the Buddhist teachings. I mean, so much of it just resonates so clearly with just a common sense understanding, even if we haven't explored it deeply, but to say things are impermanent, or to say there's suffering in the world. This doesn't jar us. You know, but when we start talking about emptiness of self, or selfish, this does not lend itself to a common sense intuition. This is like, this is like a radical turn of understanding. And that's why I really see it as being just the heart of the jewel of the Buddha's enlightenment. This is Going back to the house, when it did, uh, when I heard it on 
Because right from that question, you can go in two directions. The one direction, which we did already briefly, is the nature of the heart of emptiness. So that you don't find a resting place there, creating a sense of self resting in the heart. Having deconstructed that, then it goes, which we'll do tomorrow, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive, but it's not naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive from a place of self. It's the manifestation of the emptiness. But it's the activity. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. That's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's why, I mean, it's pow- it was a powerful teaching. Uh, and not only for you, for... <laughs> and this happens, all of our houses are burning. <laughs> you know, maybe... <laughs> they are, you know, both our physical houses, the house of our body, the house of our relationship. And this is what the Buddha is pointing out, but we don't like to see it. We don't like to acknowledge. You know, and because we don't, it, we kind of cling desperately and hold on, and that itself causes so much suffering. It's like it's just going down the wrong path, and it's that's why this practice really takes a lot of courage. You know, it's it's to be willing to see the truth of things, but in the seeing of that, it's really the letting go of the suffering. But it takes really opening to it. Your situation with the That what is ego? Coming in, so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's ego? Ego could be seen in, in, in this example. I, I see two aspects of ego in it. One is the self-referencing of the thoughts. How could I be so stupid? As if there's an I there to be stupid. Uh, so right right in the content of the thought, there's a creation of the sense of self. But more important, and a, a deeper or a, a stronger place of ego in that scenario is not the content of the thought, but the identification with the thought. And so even if the thought were there, how could I be so stupid? 
and this was more the case in my experience, seeing that the thought itself is just a thought, just an empty thought. And so if we're not identifying with that thought, then even though the content is ego-referenced, we're not actually creating the ego in that moment, creating the sense of self. So the ego is the, is the false self. It's the, well, something solid that we're creating yeah. that is not there. I need to back up a minute. One potential confusion is that the way psychologists use the word ego and the way Buddhists do is two different usages. I'm so, looking at the Buddhist. Okay. So it's just... Yeah. Within the Buddhist framework, What's happening in moments of identification with what's arising, there's a creation of a felt sense of self. So it's not that... The self is not there, but we get a felt sense of it in that moment of identification. And that's why people feel as if there's a self or an I, because really what they're feeling is that moment of identification which takes things to be self. You know, and so this is really, you can experience this in what I suggested doing this morning, when we're lost in a thought, that being lost has that quality of being identified with it. And then you're aware that it's just a thought and it's the identification with it releases and very often the thought disappears in that moment. Are we on the same? Are we on the same wavelength? Yeah, I'm trying to. I'm, I'm focusing at a specific moment uh -huh. where you have the thought and the feeling. How can I bring some freedom? Right. And really trying to figure out what to understand. What was there? Right. You know, not the next moment where you actually, you know, deconstruct right. that. Right. Right. But right. at that moment before. Right. 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 Again, it gets very subtle because again, I want to back up a minute. That thought, how could I be so stupid? When I'm on retreat and just different things from my past are coming up, that's one of the most frequent thoughts I have. How could I be so stupid? How could I have done that? So I say that by way of pointing out that a lot of thoughts that come are habituated, that it's a habituated pattern. The quality of itselfness, or the quality of self in the moment, really has less to do with the content than the way we're relating in the very moment that the thought arises. You know, so. And I've gotten so used to that thought in my mind that I just, even as it's arising, it's like I just smile. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's funny to me. And so even though the thought contains within it the I, the relationship to the thought does not. 
Now, we could pick that up at various stages. We could be lost and really feel, how could I be so stupid and really have that self-judgment for some time and then realize? Or we could see it right as it arises. So it's all, I think, in the relationship to it. I think that's what determines the ego quality. Yesterday we were <coughs> talking a lot about emptiness and ways of recognizing it through the intimation of being with really great teachers who embody it, through teachers helping to point it out through our own practice, practice of awareness and seeing the ungovernableness of phenomena, that things are not amenable to our will, seeing the emptiness through the awareness of impermanence, the momentariness, things don't last long enough to be called self, and seeing emptiness, experiencing it through seeing that the word self or I does not refer to anything that could be called self, and so deconstructing it in that way. There's one last uh, aspect of seeing emptiness that I want to mention before going on to today's subject, and that is uh, a way that's emphasized in, in Dzogchen and some of the Zen traditions, in which I intimated in the meditation this morning, of the direct looking into the empty nature of the mind. Of course, in the Dzogchen teachings, this is emphasized a lot, to look into the nature of awareness. And when you look for it, there's nothing to find. It's empty in that sense, that it's invisible. There's no substance there. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit more. In one of the most powerful Dzogchen texts, which you might look at sometime, it's a book called Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness. It's translated by John Reynolds. John Reynolds. It's an extremely powerful teaching of Padmasambhava Guru Rinpoche. And it's a direct pointing, one of the clearest and most direct pointings to the nature, to this empty nature of mind. Just one line from it says, It is certain that the nature of the mind is empty and without any foundation whatsoever. Your own mind is insubstantial like the empty sky. You should look at your mind and see whether this is so or not. And so this is another way of recognizing emptiness, just the direct looking at the nature of mind. Mind is vivid like a flawless piece of crystal, intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, ceaselessly responsive. Naturally radiant. Now what does that mean? The radiance here 
refers to that nature of awareness, that innate wakefulness. And this is what's so amazing in our own practice, as I was, again, as I was suggesting in the meditation, we just sit, when the mind is undistracted, sounds are known, thoughts are known, sensations are known, nobody is doing anything. It's not that we have to create the wakefulness. Simply we have to stop obscuring it, because it is naturally radiant. Radiant meaning this cognizing faculty. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that some great white light is going to appear necessarily. It just means this capacity of knowing, this capacity of awareness. It's naturally radiant. And this awareness, understanding the nature of this awareness, is really the great mystery of our lives. Because, as we've said, when we look for it, there's nothing to find. There's nothing there. And yet the cognizing function is happening all the time, effortlessly, spontaneously. And so to look within at one's own mind, as Padmasambhava said, to see whether this is so or not. It's not a question of belief or constructing a kind of philosophic system. It's just looking in at how things are being known moment after moment. There's a book uh, with a wonderful title and a wonderful first line. After the first line, I kind of lost interest. uh, The name of the book is, well, it was written by this mathematician called Robert Kaplan. Oh, I think think he was at Harvard or someplace (coughs) like that. he wrote a book on the history of the number zero. And the name of the book is The Nothing That Is. It is a great title, The Nothing That Is. And this is the first line of the book, is, look at zero and you see nothing. (laughs) Look through it and you see the world. You know, and it was just, I read that and I thought, that's such a wonderful analogy or description of the nature of mind. Right? It's zero. Look at zero and you see nothing. Look through it and you see the world. And somehow it just captured that sense. I don't know if I brought it down with me. This is this is from a just a couple of lines from a poem by the Polish poet who won the Nobel Prize some years ago. I'm going to mangle her name. Wisława Simborska. <laughs> and the, the title of this poem is "View with a Grain of Sand," and I'll just read a few because it's the same idea. The window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world, colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. 
the window has a wonderful view of the lake, but the view doesn't view itself. So it's like the window, you could say, is like zero. The window itself is nothing, and yet we look through it and we see the world, we see the ocean, we see the lake. So the nature of mind is like that. It's that empty, zero, nothing, that has this cognizing function. And this is the nature of our minds. And again, as Guru Rinpoche said, we need to look into the nature of our minds to see this, to recognize it. Something I think I mentioned in the last, when I was here a couple of years ago, and just I want to reiterate briefly, it's important not to confuse this inherently empty, naturally radiant nature of mind with different mind states, you know, and in the different traditions in Theravada, these mind states that can be confused with are called corruptions of insight. You know, they're all the, they're really the factors of enlightenment, of mindfulness, of rapture, of calm, of peace. But what happens is when these qualities, states of mind, get developed, as they do in practice, what happens is we get attached to them. And we, we start taking these states as being that quality of open emptiness. And they're very seductive because they are very spacious. You know, and so we can have this feeling we can be in this very spacious place of great clarity and great luminosity. You know, where the mind really is shining in that way. But that is a conditioned state. And so we don't want to confuse that with zero. In Dzogchen, they, they talk about the same phenomena in another way. Uh, they say, beware of bliss, clarity, and non-thought. Right? Because we get into this place of bliss, clarity, non-thought, and it looks like <laughs> this is it, you know, we've arrived. But in the same way as the corruptions of insight, their meditative states, which are conditioned arisings. And we need to not confuse those with whatever word we'd like, emptiness, zero. And one of the great Thai masters, Ajahn Mahabua, who's really the Thai forest tradition, and in Thailand, uh, he's considered an arhant, and, you know, fully enlightened being. He's, he's very powerful and, and great teacher. Um, he talks about, in his own development, how he went through a place of the mind becoming tremendously radiant, not in the sense of the simple knowing faculty, but of this radiance of clarity, of non-thought, and of these states that I'm talking about now and really uh, seeing the power, the great power of the seduction of those states. Uh, 
And as he describes, his books are great because he really describes his own practice, you know, at these very high levels. He says, if there is a point or center of the knower anywhere, there's a point or center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of self or of being. This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over at this point to play side. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.